It's uh, my desire that uh, the, the Lord uh, uh, enrich us with his presence here this evening. Uh, I believe he will do that, and he has already done that. Because, because of the focus and the climactic uh, events for us here at Faith Christian this week, my awareness of God's purpose for the church has been sharpened and challenged. I've been made aware afresh that we are an integral part of something that is much bigger than we are ourselves. And, and that the church is not an organization that we can manipulate and adjust to our liking and control. I'm, I'm grateful that that's the way it is. The church is uh, not an organization planned and held together by man, but it is, in reality, a living organism that is the result of life, spiritual life, eternal life, if you please. It is an organism of Christ. The church is an organism of which Christ is the head and the source of its life. When I uh, reflected on this, I, uh, I thought of the uh, different terms or metaphors that the New Testament uses to refer to the church. I think of four of them especially. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 refers to the church as the church of the living God, the ground and pillar of the truth. Then Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 speaks of the church as the household or the family of God. Ephesians and 1 Corinthians numerous times uses the term the body of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, it speaks of the church as a building fitly framed together that groweth, have you ever seen a building grow? <laughs> Organically. The church is a, is, is a building, like a building fitly framed together so that when it's so fitly framed together, you don't see, well, this is one piece, that's one piece, but it's a whole. And uh, it groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. Recently, I've been reading the book of Acts. Uh, in chapter 2, we're told how the church was birthed when the 120 in, the, in an upper room were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, this, this was the, the core, uh, this was the church then. This, the, this 120 were the church that was uh, brought into being by, through God baptizing, the Lord baptizing them with the Holy Spirit of promise as he told, told them he would. In chapter 2, then, we are also told that how, how on the same day that the church was birthed, through the preaching of Peter, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, there were 3,000 souls that responded to the preaching of the gospel and were baptized and 
were added to them. They were added to the 120 that uh, consisted of the church up to that point for at least several hours. That, that is a phenomenal growth <laughs> in, a, in a matter of hours. Then by chapter 4, we're told that the number of those, the, the, the number of, of those Jews uh, the, that, uh, that came to believe now came to be about 5,000 men, 5,000 people, as I understand that. We, we're not told how much time elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 4. Was it one month? Was it a week? Was it a couple of days? Or one, a month? Uh, three or, or six months? In either case, any way you look at it, that describes an, the, an, an explosive growth of the church. 5,000 people. I don't know if we can really grasp that, uh, that happening. With that kind of growth, in any kind of human organization, uh, you would expect some kind of chaotic thing uh, taking place as a result of that kind of, of explosive growth in a short period of time. But I'd like to uh, point out that in, in chapter 5 and in verses 32 through 34, it gives us three things. It, it, it gives us three characteristics of the church at that particular time. And I'd just like to note those three things uh, briefly. The first thing that it notes is in verse 32, where it says that the multitude of those that believed, 5,000 people now in a short period of time, were of one heart and one soul. What do you make of that? Isn't that phenomenal? That's what I call unanimity. <laughs> um, the, the unity of the spirit that, that draws 5,000 people, individuals, together so that they were of one heart and one soul. Um, not, not only is the church not an organization, but an organism, but uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary uh, tells us this, that just as the church is more than an organization, so the unity of the church is more than an organizational unity brought about by man, but is the unity of a living organism, end of quote, from Ungers. So they were of one heart and one soul. That's only, that can only take place when, when the Lord is in their midst and draws them together. The second thing I would note is verse 33. He says, and great grace was upon them all. Pray, tell me, what does this mean? That great grace was upon them all. Is that simply saying that they've all been saved by grace, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, by faith through grace? 
Well, I think it's saying something a little bit more than that. Great grace was upon them all. I, I really wonder if uh, this kind of great, phenomenal grace resting on these 5,000 people didn't have something to do with how they loved each other. Can, can we love each other as God wants us to love each other without the enabling grace of God? <laughs> I don't think so. Great grace was upon them all. The, the third thing it tells us is verse 34. And, and this, this, this astounds me again. When it says, nor was there anyone among them that lacked. Five thousand people, five thousand believers together. From all walks of life, some richer, some poorer, maybe some homeless. I don't know. But it says, among these 5,000 people that consisted of the church at this particular time, there was not one, there was not anyone among them that lacked. Well, one, one translation puts it this way. There was not a needy person among them. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I only want to say, include my comments by saying that wouldn't it be something? <laughs> wouldn't it really be something if these three things would characterize faith Christian fellowship in the same way? Is there the possibility that 2,000 years after Acts chapter 4, these three things could still be true of us? There was great unanimity. Great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. I pray that be true of us here at Faith Christian. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us this evening. We're gathered in your name, and we humbly ask you to invade our presence this evening. We invade this fellowship, this gathering, with a deep sense of your anointed presence. We need you very much. Lord, we recognize that this is not an organization created by man that this church should be and is an organism of which you are the source of our life and the source of our unanimity. I pray that you will bless every aspect of our gathering here this evening every aspect of this service. I pray that your special anointing be upon Dave as he further leads us, and upon James as he ministers to us.
and especially pray that your Holy Spirit might rest upon Nate and Andrea at this time. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we are trusting you for a blessing through Brother James as he ministers based on what you have given him. And uh, pray that your Holy Spirit anoint him with the clarity and uh, of thought and words to uh, share what you have, have laid on his heart through the word. Just want to give him to you and, and pray that we can be attentive and hear what you have for each one of us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother, for the prayer. Well, I greet you again tonight in the name of Jesus, and uh, just want to express again our gratefulness for uh, allowing us to be here with you. It's been a, a tremendous blessing. Glad and I just talked uh, this afternoon that it has been a refreshing time for us, an encouragement, and as always the case when we uh, go out for a weekend like this, we always leave a little bit of our hearts here with you, and uh, just uh, grateful for that uh, oneness of spirit. Thank you, Brother Wayne, for that devotional. Uh, very challenging and a call, a high call that God gives to each of us. And to you, Nate and Ann, Micah, God bless you as you fill this role. And uh, I'm persuaded that God will enable you with uh, strength and wisdom and understanding. I believe this will be a real blessing for the congregation. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> and um, uh, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, but for some reason God has, uh, uh, we've been asked uh, quite frequently to help out in ordinations. And, and uh, one of the things that I always like to do in a weekend like this is to uh, tailor a message. I just sense like it's important for us to tailor a message, particularly to the congregation. Uh, we've had three messages uh, Thursday evening, Friday evening, and this morning that was sort of geared more toward leadership and servant leadership. And I think that's good and proper. I know that you've had uh, previous messages that were uh, centered around qualifications, and I think that's all really good. But uh, tonight, I would like, I just sense like God wanted me to uh, tailor a message that was uh, that would speak directly to the congregation here at Faith Christian, and so we'd like to look at two verses in First Thessalonians five, verses twelve and thirteen. We'll read that, and then we'll come back to it again a little bit later. Here's how it reads: And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourself. And I'm going to reread that in the ESV. I like how that reads a little bit better, maybe a little bit more accurately. It goes like this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Nearly 134 years ago, a young Saxon Fox Indian boy was born on the Oklahoma frontier. And the young lad's name was, Indian name was Wathohuk, and it meant bright path. And uh, the name seemed to fit the young man because it seemed he certainly had a bright future ahead of him although I'm sure his parents at the time were not aware of it. However, most people don't recognize him by his Indian name. A lot of people, more people, know him best as Jim Thorpe, the world's greatest athlete. Being raised on the Oklahoma prairie uh, gave young Thorpe a lot of opportunity. It's said that by age six, uh, he could already shoot gun, he could ride horse, he could trap and uh, that he was an ex expert uh, wrangler and a breaker of wild horses. His tone physique was due in part as a result of hard labor. 
but there was also a looseness of ability about him that allowed him, as one sports writer wrote, to move like the breeze. And it seemed that Thorpe's ability, uh, his, his uh, athletic ability, was almost uncanny. But not everything about Thorpe, Jim Thorpe, uh, went well for him. He lost his mother at a young age, and not soon after that, uh, he also lost his father. And consequently, he became the ward of the state of a governmental school system and eventually ended up in Pennsylvania at uh, the Carlisle uh, Indian Industrial School uh, here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is, I googled it, and it's about 150 miles almost due north of here. Uh, And he went to school there, a government-run boarding school for Native North Americans. One of his teachers described uh, Jim as, as being offhanded, modest, and casual about everything. But there was one thing that Jim loathed more than anything else, and, uh, and that was to be put in the spotlight and to be the center of the tension. Yet the very thing that he hated most was the thing that sort of followed him wherever he went. And the reason is very simple. It was because he was, a very, he was an extremely talented uh, man, a young man, and had natural athletic abilities that few had ever seen. One day soon after arriving at the, at the school at Carlisle, uh, he was ambling across the, the uh, campus when he saw one of his upperclassmen uh, practicing high jump. Jim had never seen the game before, but he was intrigued by it, and he asked his fellow uh, classmate if he could, uh, if he could try uh, jumping the, the bar. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, the, and the fellow classmate uh, allowed him. The bar was set at five foot nine. Jim's height was five foot eight. And yet it's said that he cleared the bar with ease in his bib overalls and his uh, work shirt that he, hickory, thick hickory work shirt that he was uh, wearing. The next morning, uh, the uh, Glenn Warner, the uh, famous coach at, at Carlisle, the football coach and the track coach summons Jim into his office, and, and Jim, not knowing what he wanted, asked him, am I in trouble? Uh, something wrong? To which Warner replied, replied, son, you've only broken the school uh, high jump record. That's all. Another legend story that follows Thorpe is the day that he tried out for the football uh, team. And at one practice, Warner observed, that uh, Thorpe, uh, his inexperience yet raw ability, uh, was, was most unique. And he challenged Thorpe to run against the entire Carlisle team, which Jim did. He dodged and he waved his way all across the field and outran all 30 players to make a touchdown. The coach couldn't believe what he just saw. And so he challenged him to do it, do it again, and Jim did for the second time. He outran the entire team. Obviously, he made the football team. That season of 1911-1912, he was given the title All-American. It was also that year, 1912, (laughs) that the Olympics were being held in Stockholm, uh, Sweden. And uh, Thorpe found himself on the ocean liner Finland, heading for the Games with the rest of the U.S. contingent. And uh, he had his sights set to compete in two events, the now defunct pentathlon as well as the decathlon. And just for the records, the pentathlon consists of five events that are played in one day, while the decathlon consists of 10 events that are played in a three-day competition. Both of these are played within one week of each other. But Jim was in peak shape. He was in peak performance, and thought, uh, the thought of playing 15 games in, uh, within a week didn't seem to faze him at all. A lot of skill, a lot of his skill, it seems, stemmed more from raw ability or raw talent than the practicing and honing uh, for these events. So Jim launched into his first competition, the, Penta, uh, the, uh, uh, the decathlon, and he crushed his competitors by winning four of the five events. In fact, the 1,500-mile-meter uh, run, he won five seconds faster than the second-place runner. 
It's the only event that he lost that day. Or the only event that he lost that day was the javelin throw in which he placed third. A week later was the decapolon, and the con competition started on the first day in pouring rain. But the rain didn't seem to phase Jim at all as he splashed down the track in the 100-meter run. And he did it in 11.2 seconds, a record that would hold for the next 36 years. But it was in day two that Jim got into serious trouble. There's a famous photo that can be seen, and if you look closely at Jim Thorpe's feet, you will notice that he is wearing two different shoes and two different pairs of socks. And this, by the way, was not a fashion show. Uh, rather, it was a desperate attempt to improvise after he discovered that someone had taken his shoes. There is speculation that this was done intentionally to try to keep him from competing the rest of that event. Thorpe and Coach Warren looked desperately, searched desperately for his shoes that morning, but they could not find them. And finally, minutes before the first event, which was the high jump, uh, he asked a friend if he would have an extra pair of shoes. And he didn't have an extra pair, but he had one, one shoe, one extra shoe. I have no idea why he would, but he did have one, one shoe, uh, which Jim used. And in desperation, Jim began to rummage through the trash can, the trash bin, and he sure enough found a second pair, but that one, or the second, not a pair, but a, the second shoe, but that one was a bit too large for him. And so he wore several layers of socks to try to fill the gap. And this is now the photo that uh, shows the two different sh shoes and the socks. Yet in spite of his mismatched shoes, Jim would go out and easily win the high jump competition. Later that afternoon, he would compete in one of his most favorite races, the 110-meter hurdle jumps, which he blistered through in 15.6 seconds. The feat was unbelievable. On day three, still in mismatched shoes, Thorpe lost two events, for one to the third place and one to the fourth place, but he ended the day in the final race, the 115 uh, the 1,500-meter uh, run. And uh, this leg-burning monster came on the heels of nine other events within three days, in the previous two days, I guess I should say. But Jim blistered through that race, the metric mile, in an amazing four minutes and 40.1 seconds, a record that would hold until 1972 when Brian Clay would outrun him by one second. It's an amazing story of triumph and overcoming difficult obstacles in the midst of defying odds. I've entitled the message tonight, Staying the Course, Staying the Course. You know, sometimes it seems that the church of God may look a little bit like Jim Thorpe did on his second to last day of the 1912 Olympics. A little mismatched, a little bit clumsy, needing an extra sock or two to fill the void. By all appearances, the, 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 the odds were stacked against him. And sometimes we look around and we, we, we can get overwhelmed with uh, wonder whether the church of Jesus Christ will be able to weather the end times, the, the, the latter times. But I wanted to declare tonight that, that I've read the last book of this Bible and I'm here to declare to you that the church will win. The church of Jesus Christ will win. Amen. Let me remind you that you will not win as a congregation. God will not look on faith, Christian fellowship, and qualify or disqualify you as a group. This will happen on an individual basis. At the end of the day, you will only answer to one, which should behoove us, all of us, to stay the course. This is one time that individuality matters. <laughs> and it is important for each of us to take daily inventory of our lives. I also want to remind you that God has wisely, wisely established groups, pockets of believers, 
better known as local fellowship, or as we've talked already this morning, by the way, brother, really appreciated, Juan, your devotional this morning, embassies, embassies in this world, knowing that it is in this environment that our propensity for productivity and sustainability will be best served. It's in this setting. Perhaps some of you have had church experiences that are less than desirable, and it has caused you to lose confidence in the local body. And I, 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 want, to, I, I want to hear your story, and I, I lament your story. These, these realities are real, and they must be acknowledged. Yet I would call you to consider the benefits of the local body that has mismatched shoes and has multi-layered socks. And I would suggest that it is actually the perfect environment for you to win. What if Jim Thorpe had become bitter, cynical, discouraged, and given up after his shoes came up missing? Would he have walked away with two gold medals? Hardly, right? Rather, he considered the reality. He improvised when everything else was stacked against him, and he broke through the odds by persevering and staying the course. It is truly a story of redemption, and it is no different with the church of Jesus Christ. And I, want, I just want you to hear me very carefully. I invite you to hear me very carefully. There is no church experience, I don't believe, where you can be fully engaged and connected at a heart level that you will not hit obstacles in tough situations and tough relationships. At some points, your shoes may very well come up missing, as it were. And our natural propensity at that time is to either lash out to the degree of hurt that we've experienced or else to crawl into a shell, retreat, nurse our wounds, and disconnect from the body of Christ. Separation in those times seems like a viable option. But I believe we're witnessing it all around us. It seems to me that there are growing numbers of offenses that are all around us among God's children, and that bothers me a lot. But I would remind you that Jesus actually told us, he, he explicitly told us, that at the end of times, many will be offended and will betray one another and hate one another. Why then are we so caught off guard when these things strike? And friends, I just want to remind you that your brothers and your sisters are not your enemy. Congregation, your pastors are not your enemy. Pastors, your deacon is not your enemy. And deacon, the flock of God is not your enemy. Now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs to band together and stay the course. We must recognize the wolf, as we've talked about this morning, for who he is. He knows his time is limited, and he is unleashing his fury against the church, ultimately against his arch enemy, Jesus Christ. But it's being played out, I believe, through his church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And I just encourage you, don't allow him to be a pawn in his head. Don't allow yourself to be a pawn in his hand. I call you again to stay together, that unity that Brother Wayne was talking about, and stay the course. As we wrap up the message tonight, this weekend event, I want to look at three ways that you as Faith Christian Fellowship can stay the course. And of course, what I offer you tonight is not an exhaustive list at all, by any means. But if you pay attention to at least these three things, I think it will set you on a good course. Allow me just to read that passage of Scripture again from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I see three instructions that are given to the congregation. The first one, respect those who labor among you. Number two, esteem them very highly. And number three, be at peace 
among yourselves. I'd like to break these three down in our remaining time. First one, respect those who labor among you. The Hebrew writer gets a little bit more direct in chapter 13, verse 17, when he instructs the reader to obey your leaders and submit to them. And I don't know that that's just necessarily retained to you church leadership. I think it's any authority that's in your life. I preached this theme over the last several years at, at events like this, and I do it for two reasons. The first one is that I'm at an age that I am much more concerned how I will end than I am motivated by a power trip. And what I mean by that is that I have a much greater desire to hear the words of my master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And that to me is much more important than hoisting myself on my own petard. So this is not a message to try to elevate myself at all. The message is not about self-elevation. Secondly, the reason I share this message, I share this message for the sake of my, my fellow younger servants who are coming into the ministry and who are ministering in a time when God-given authority structures are being scoffed at and ignored and ridiculed openly and in blatant ways, and this really concerns me. The spirit of obedience and submission towards those who labor among you is fundamental to Christian living. In fact, I would take it a step further and say that submission and authority, regardless of the jurisdiction, is necessary for the proper ordering of society. And I believe a good example of what I'm referring to is what we've witnessed the last several years when anarchy took to the streets of many cities across the United States. And God-ordained authorities were trampled, scoffed, and repressed with defiance and rebellion. Social structures crumble quickly when public acts of independence, uh, or, or when the public acts independently from the laws of the land. And I don't think it's any different in a local church. When God's children act independently and with self-will, there's little growth, peace, or joy in the ministry of a local church. It is only when believers properly submit to each other and toward their, toward their leadership that the church has any chance to survive in a thriving environment where there's growth and where there's nurture and health. And just to make sure that we're, that we're offering a balanced message tonight, I would remind the pastors and the deacons of any church that we are equally under the authority of Jesus Christ and his holy word. The leadership is, is not a ruling, ought not to be a ruling oligarchy. They cannot do or say whatever they want just because they are the elders or the deacons. They cannot do or say, or no church belongs to the leaders. Uh, in, in the local church, there are not rulers who, who are above, nor, nor subjects who, who stand beneath, but rather are all equal as brothers and sisters in the family of God. However, I would say that God ordained it that some function in spirit-placed overseers to guide and protect the family of God. And I believe this calls for respect. So the first instruction, exhortation that I would just give you is to respect those who labor among you. The second one is to esteem them very highly, who, uh, those uh, who labor among you. The scripture teaches us that those who bear the responsibility of church leadership ought to be highly esteemed. And if this were pulled out of my own pocket, like I said before, I'd have something to be ashamed of. But listen, this is the word of God. And I will say this much. It's much easier for me to teach this here than it would be at my own congregation. I know this flies in the face of our culture to esteem highly. And it's certainly the last intent of mine to elevate the leadership above the laity. We are your servants. We are, uh, your, yes, and, and as servants, we, we earn the trust of the flock by modeling Christ-like, humble, and loving leadership. It is very evident that Brother Nate and Ann have already 
earn a degree of trust from the congregation, and we never want to lose that ground. <clears throat> However, I think we'd also be remiss if I did not clarify the other half of the, uh, the equation. The, uh, an I believe an intrinsic shift does take place when hands are placed and commissioned by God to be a shepherd or a deacon in the church of God, and God calls the congregation when that takes place to esteem the couple that has just been ordained. In fact, it not only does uh, calls us or instructs us to, to esteem them, but to esteem them very highly for the work that they do. And I want to remind you as a congregation, I think I may have mentioned it the first evening, that most of the work gets done in the shadows of ministry from the public eye. Many, many hours are invested behind the scene that require your servants uh, to their, their energy, their, their attention, their, their work. And I also remind you that their spouses and their family members are involved as they participate in the work, if for no other reason than to support and bless their husband and father as he engages in the work. But I want to draw attention especially to the phrase, very highly. Not only are we to esteem, but we're to esteem them very highly. The idea is, uh, the, the, the Greek of these, this, this, these two words are hooperosis, perosos, I think it is, perosos, which means over superabundantly, over superabundantly. We are to esteem those who, uh, to, who labor among you over superabundantly. And I believe we have a beautiful example of this in Scripture as we look at the elders and the Apostle Paul when he was getting ready to depart there in Acts chapter 20. And, and, and Paul meets the elders down uh, by the sea there as he was getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. And, and the Spirit had already testified to these elders that they were not going to see uh, Paul any longer. Uh, and, and in fact, there was a, a, a prophetic word given that day that uh, chains and uh, tribulation would, uh, would await him. But Paul proceeded to give the elders some very excellent advice, and then he included a, a prayer for them at the close of his speech. And then at the very end of that chapter, it says, and I'll, I'll read it, it says, and when he had said, the, he, Paul, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed for with all of them, and then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. It was very evident that Paul had somewhat, somehow uh, won their trust and their esteem, and it was very high. This relationship, I'm sure, did not develop overnight. In fact, it was over several years. And again, Nate, I would just say to you that the responsibilities rests as much with you as it does with the congregation. I'd like to look at the third and the final instruction that we have in this passage <clears throat> that would call you to stay the course. And of the three instructions that we have, I would submit to you that this one may be the most important of them all. I'm first of all going to address the local leadership. Uh, Brother Dave and Ivan and Brother Nate as deacon, it is crucial. In fact, it is paramount that there be peace among the leadership at all times. I do want to commend you as a congregation that I have spent some time with them, particularly yesterday. And as I sat together with them, drinking coffee, chatting, talking, and again last night over a meal, uh, I did sense a camaraderie that I just want to commend and, uh, and, and, and give to you as an encouragement. I just say, keep it up. Keep it up. And by the way, church family, continue to pray for them. Pray for them in this regard. Conflict among the leadership is equally as devastating, I believe, in a local congregation as unresolved differences between a husband and a wife. I was always amazed as a young father when Glad and I's heart would grow cold towards each other for whatever reason, uh, how quickly the attitudes of our children would shift. 
And uh, even though there was never any fist striking or, or loud yelling matches at all, yes, there were times when our hearts would grow cold towards each other for whatever reason. And, and the spirit that was going on between Glad and I filtered down to our children. And guess what? Before long, the children became crabby, and they became disgruntled with each other. And oftentimes, it did turn into a fist fight with them. You know, parents, what I'm talking about, don't you? I'm sure you do. And the reason is very simple. It is because spirits connect. Spirits speak to each other, I believe. It's why the very reason you can walk into Walmart, never have seen a person or talked to a person, and somehow strike up a conversation, and something in your spirit says, that person's a believer. It's the spirit that is connecting. Correct. Well, the same trickle-down effect takes place in the body of Christ, I believe, when the hearts of her servants grow cold towards each other. When there is a spirit of distrust, a spirit of imagination, or a spirit of pride, that raises its ugly head among her leaders, that same spirit will inevitably ripple down across the congregation. How do I know that? Because I've experienced it. I've seen it. But there are other times in the family that the hearts of the parents are truly connected to each other. And they are at peace with each other. And guess what? The children are still crabby and contentious. Yeah. That blame, the blame does not always result because of conflict with her leaders. There are times when members allow carnality and selfishness to dominate the heart, and the effects of those traits have equally damaging consequences. You know, for a group of people who've anchored themselves in a theology of non-resistance, we have not always done very well in living out what we say we believe. I'm going to be very honest with you. If there was anything that nearly drove me away from embracing the Anabaptist lifestyle as a youngster, it was the seemingly inability to reconcile our differences. Our church split right down the middle when I was 10 years old. And I can't describe to you, except for you who know what I'm talking about, how that affects you growing up. And it is only by the grace of God. You know, as I look back, I could have become so bitter about that. There were moments that I was bitter about it because my good friends left, right? How's a 10-year-old boy supposed to reconcile that? Mom and dad can't get along with his mom and dad, and they're gone. Somehow, in God's grace, instead of turning my heart bitter, there's an inner resolve to say we can do better than that. You know, we may not pick up a gun and go to war, but somehow we don't seem to have an issue using our tongues to slash, to cut, to mutilate each other in ways that are far more damaging than any bullet can ever do to the body. That little jingle that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. <laughs> no, that is false. Words can kill the soul. Words can kill the soul. One of the things that we just keep encouraging our congregation to do, and I just encourage you to do it. I heard it this morning. What I just encourage you to keep doing is to, to just bless each other publicly. If somebody has done something to you that blessed you, tell the congregation. It's just a way to build up the body of Christ. It's so much better than to wait till the, till the, till the conflicts come. I believe we only skim the tip of the iceberg. When we teach our young boys not to go to war, uh, that's actually the easiest part of that doctrine. I think we need, to, I think we need to, to put double energy into teaching and demonstrating the true meaning of suffering love. The path requires an investment from me rather than just merely refraining or, 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 or engaging in negative energy. You remember the conflict that Paul and Barnabas had? 
there in Acts chapter 15, when they uh, were just prior to their departure on the second missionary journey, right? And Paul wanted to take John Mark along and uh, give him a second chance. He was an encourager. He was, a, he was an exhorter probably. And, and uh, Paul, he was not going to have it. He left us down one time, and he is not fit for the journey. And the contention became so great that they decided to part ways. Now listen, I've heard pastors use this demonstration to, to sanction a division. Even Paul and Silas needed to part ways. And I don't believe that's why that example is in Scripture. I think the example is in Scripture to show what happened, what went wrong. Have you ever noticed why they parted ways? And I draw your attention to verse 37 and 38. The, 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 the contention got so, so great that he decided to go two different directions. And, 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 and let me just read the, the passage and see whether you can decipher why. It reads like this. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John Mark. John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take him with them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. What were the two what were the two predominant attitudes that caused the division? Yeah, I think you know. The one brother was determined, and the other one insisted. And guess what? They went two different directions. Now, I think God redeemed that in ways that maybe perhaps the church grew in ways that it didn't otherwise. But I would still not use this as an example to bless a division. I think we ought to do better than that. It created the perfect ingredient, I think, for them to part ways. Almost invariably, when there is a parting of ways, it typically, there's typically an element of pride and selfishness at its core. A peacemaker will give up his rights, his ways, uh, and, and choose to lay down their life by saying yes to my brother and no to myself. That's difficult at times. I know that. I've been there. I've needed to do it to my fellow pastors. There's times that I think we should do one thing, and, and the others are saying, no, we, th- we should do it that way. And I need to submit myself and say, you know what, brothers? I trust your judgment. We will go with your plan. That's difficult sometimes, but I really believe it is Christ's way. And so tonight, I just call you as a congregation here at Faith Christian Fellowship, this embassy in this little corner of the world in Catlett, Virginia, to stay the course and be at peace among yourselves. This is one of the best ways, the most practical ways that you can honor, that you can respect, and that you can esteem your pastors, your leadership team. And I just pray God's blessing on you as you exercise this instruction. Let's pray, and then I'll give the time back to Brother Dave. Father, again, I just pray your blessing upon this congregation. Lord, as they go out Monday morning, get back into the work, Lord, I pray that they would be a light and a beacon of hope to every person they come in contact with. Lord, as this new office has been established here in this congregation, may it be a blessing and strengthening, and uh, that it would uh, just help your kingdom to grow. We pray your blessing. Lord, the Lord bless them and keep them. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you and give you peace. I pray this in your name. Amen.